Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. What is the Rotary Club? What do they do? You've probably seen the sign at the roadside. It's a yellow colored gear with blue trim, and every town has one. They are as ubiquitous a symbol as the Freemason Square and Compass, the Knights of Columbus badge, or the Lions Club emblem. But despite our familiarity with the insignia, I suspect that many of us have little knowledge about these so-called service organizations. The Freemasons are better known as a secret society, the Knights of Columbus as an ethnic Italian club, and the Rotary International is perhaps best identified with business leaders in the community. The Rotary International is much more. In the 19th century, salesmen and entrepreneurs had a bad reputation as hucksters and conmen. The Rotary clubs sought to change that impression, and public relations and advertising industries play an important part in the story about this rebranding. But Rotary clubs attempted to change more than the perception of business people. They attempted to change business practices. They connect business leaders, encourage business ethics, tie commerce to civic ideals, and perhaps most importantly, built an international network. And networking is central to their story. Non-political and non-religious, today there are 35,000 clubs in nearly every country in the world. Without wishing to spoil any storytelling here, I'll simply say that the Rotary Clubs also have a tendency to exclude as much as they claim to include. The Rotary Clubs began in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and it endures today. That alone makes it worth talking about on this podcast. What listeners will find is that the relevance of the club stretches to foreign policy, gender studies, race relations, capitalism, and the conception of class around the world. We talk today with Professor Brendan Goff, formerly of the New College in Sarasota, Florida. His book, Rotary International and the Selling of American Capitalism, takes readers from Rotary's beginnings in 1905 to the global expansion in the early 20th century and the club's trials through depressions, world wars, and globalization. Professor Goff is just the person to tell this story. He takes a multidisciplinary approach to history, and as a result, we see how Rotary mixed with global cultures and even designed a global culture all their own. Welcome to the show, Brendan. It's great to have you. Thank you, Mike. Thank, thank you for having me on here. Well, the book is Rotary International and the Selling of American Capitalism. It is, uh, it is really a deep investigation into one of the most interesting clubs and societies that are around the world. 
Can you just tell us what Rotary International is and how it was conceived? It's, just, it's kind of the grandfather of the service clubs is one way to think of it. Born out of uh, Chicago, era, uh, progressive era Chicago in 1905, it really does come kind of emerge out of the chaotic streets and urban scene of, of the Chicago loop of the period. You know, the second Rotary Club is in San Francisco in 1908. And then by 1910, 11, 12, it's a national, and they understood it as a national movement of businessmen in the top tier cities. And this is something that a lot of people don't understand about Rotary is that it started in the biggest of US cities, you know, Boston, San Francisco, New York City, whatever, Seattle, LA, but in very quick, it very quickly jumped across the Atlantic and in, in, well into Canada and then in, in, into um, by 1911 and then into London and, you know, and, and Belfast and, and Glasgow by 1912. So it was, it was already North American and even kind of Anglophone, you know, spreading quickly through the Anglophone world before World War One. So this whole notion of like of Rotary Clubs are, you know, uh, little cocoons of small town America and that's it. End of story. That kind of narrative, um, it came out of the 1920s and 1930s when Rotary Clubs really did trickle down to, to the small town world. But that's not the origins of, of the of the of the movement. It was very urban based and internationalist in in both uh, aspiration and reality. That's a great intro as to where these clubs develop. What were their objectives in the early days and their aspirations? Well, let's just say this: during World War One, um, you can imagine just like with corporate U.S. corp corporations and in industries in general. During World War I in Europe from 1914 on, this becomes an opportunity for growth for the U.S. corporations going into Latin America. They see the opportunity as businessmen already, where by 1914, 1915, 1916, they're looking at Cuba, Mexico, Venezuela, Argentina as these lands of opportunity. By, so by the time 1918, 1919 come around, the United States in general, but you know, Rotary Clubs in particular, are already looking and having a, have already established a footprint in these major cities, Buenos Aires, et cetera, but also Manila, Shanghai, Yokohama, um, uh, uh, any, anywhere that the Pacific Mail Steamship Company was going, for example, because these international circuits of trade are already there and operating fully between Vancouver, Seattle, San Francisco, and across and Honolulu and so forth. So in many ways, they're just looking to kind of stabilize and expand on these existing currents of international trade and social slash business networking. Can you tell us what RI's agenda was? I mean, you talk about the shift from the big urban centers, drilling down into the smaller towns. What's the agenda of RI in those places, in the wider world, in the small towns and the big urban centers? Well, in, right. In one sense, you have multiple levels of administration and also as a result, and membership, but also as a result, multiple layers of agendas. So when we talk about the headquarters of Rotary, it, it's initially in the, in the city of Chicago, where the original club came out of, the nexus point of all these expanding Rotary clubs around the world, right? They are the ones that are stepping back and saying, okay, what do we mean? How do we standardize membership roles? How do we standardize club bylaws? constitutions, things like that through the 1910s going into the 1920s, because this is a big problem. This is a real issue for them. But when you go, when you drill down to the local Rotary Club, whether it's small town 
in Kansas or it's in New York City. Each club tends to have, even to, to this day, uh, each club tends to have a fairly high degree of autonomy uh, when it comes to the actual club activities, the content of what they're doing, the civic engagement that they envision and, and put in place. So at the local level, it tends to be, a, especially before World War II, it tends to be a function, some function of boosterism, especially with the smaller towns and cities. You can imagine, you know, um, how do we turn our smaller town into the next Chicago or something like that? At the same time, you have the, this emerging, increasingly better funded and organized non-governmental organization, NGO, which is, especially after 1922, Rotary International, RI. RI has the general secretary of, of Rotary from like 1910 on until 1942. His name was Chesley Perry. He figures significantly throughout this whole story. You know, he's using that headquarters in Chicago to develop this kind of these kind of connective tissues of clubs and districts across national borders, sometimes according to a national unit, but very often they're trying to avoid allowing Rotary to become the British Rotarians or the Japanese Rotarians or keep a distance between Rotary International and, and Rotary clubs in a given national setting and the nationalist agendas of that country at that time. Uh, so it becomes a real test case, and especially as you can imagine by the 1930s with the advent of fascism, they're supposed to be above the fray. It's a non-government, they wouldn't have said it at the time, it, you know, they would have said we're a voluntary association or we, you know, but we shouldn't be working hand in glove with any particular empire or nation, including our own country, right? Now, that was the official line, but, you know, there are examples of like the support that some Rotary clubs and Rotarians had for the American Protective League during World War I. So it's, it's always a, a give and take moving and blurred border between the state, non-state worlds. So tell me a little bit about the leadership. You mentioned just briefly there, Ches uh, Chesley Perry, who is the president of the Chicago and then later the international RI, right? And um, tell, tell me a little bit more about the leadership of the RI, because it's obviously not just a one man show. Yeah, well, the, the official founder is Paul P. Harris, because it, it was during this period that, you know, advertising and PR um, firms and PR, really, uh, you know, public relations um, um, as a field was emerging. And, and, and um, uh, they, they always want to have like, who's the founder? What's their story, their biography? And then that founder and their biography becomes the kind of microcosm for the organization, you know, who was H.J. Hines, you know, and what motivated him to start making ketchup, right? And then, and then you put that in the forefront of the, of the advertising because it puts the face of a human being on a faceless corporation, right? So in some ways, Paul P. Harris served in that function. He really did uh, push for the formation of the original Rotary Club in Chicago in 1905. And in many ways, his, his, his personal life trajectory in many ways did capture or was a microcosm of what turned out to be the world of Rotary a generation later, because he's traveling a lot in the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, but he grew up in a small town world in, in, um, in America. And so here he ends up in, in this, you know, chaotic world of, of, of business in Chicago in 1903, 04, 05, et cetera. And he's like, we need some sort of grounding, some sort of hometown feel to this anonymous world that we're in and so forth. But the real kind of executor of the will, so to speak, uh, the, the real, the real uh, um, 
um, the person who really carried out the actual expansion of rotary clubs around the world, especially after 1918, or especially after 19, after 1915, 16, but especially after 1919 with the end of the war was Chesley Perry. And so Perry was in Cuba during the, the war with Spain and, you know, in, in Cuba. Um, and so he had experience in Cuba from that, but he also, he had a background in, you know, working in, in the Chicago library and so forth. Uh, he was the one who on a daily basis, any kind of mis, misinformation, um, misunderstanding, uh, um, any kind of uh, kerfuffles over what membership entails, what, what should the bylaws be? He's really the guy to go to. And so his, his uh, communications between 1910 and 1942, when he stepped down as general secretary, was pro were prodigious. Within that, you have the emphasis on local clubs. So you have a club president, club treasurer, club secretary, especially before World War uh, II, uh, that was the standard that you had to have. And then every year, the club presidency would switch over. These clubs need to be kind of proving grounds or uh, training grounds for uh, leadership qualities at the local level. So I'm president of a club this year, and then you could be groomed to be the club president next year. So, and then and, and so on and so on. So that it would prevent any one club being taken over by one group of people. The only continuity generally was the club secretary. Sometimes you have a club secretary in there for decades. What you're seeing with these clubs and with this kind of organization was this, the, the drive towards stabilizing business identities, business communities, business practices, right? Because again, in the, in the height of the Gilded Age, a big problem is that, you know, charlatans moving from town to town and no one knowing the difference, et, et cetera. So you could see if I'm a businessman and I'm going from one town to an, or one state to another and someone doesn't know me, I come in to the, um, I come into a new town or city, I go to the, the, the big hotel downtown and I put a little R next to my name or with a circle around it or something. And that would tell the, the hotel manager, oh, he's a Rotarian. So it's a, it's a social movement among businessmen. I think you, you also, getting back to the clubs and how they operate, you really eloquently depict how the clubs are egalitarian in their ethos, but classist in the way they promote local business leaders as the elite of a given society. How much do you think this hierarchy is a reflection of the overarching system of capitalism? Oh, it is. It definitely reflects it, right? Um, but it's it's tricky because you know, kind of the a key part of the alchemy of capitalism turns on the notion of of hierarchy as meritocracy. So the 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 inequalities that that come out of the capitalist system are somehow natural, inevitable, and right. That's the, that's the trick here is the question of how to, you know, for example, during the 1930s or during the 1900s, 1900 to 1910, during period, periods when capitalism was really under the, under the microscope, so to speak, um, as, as a fundamental basis for society. It's out of that that you get these re waves of rehabilitation of capitalism in general, but and I think Rotary Clubs 
uh, uh, emerge out of the first wave of rehabilitation in the 1900s, 1910s, where they're saying, no, capitalism isn't bad. The problem is we just need to fix it. Similarly, in the 1920s, you have that in the 1950s. And uh, again, where because you have that second wave of, of the rehabilitation of capitalism in, in the United States in the wake of the Great Depression, you know, uh, and uh, World War II. But the fundamental dynamic of rehabilitating capitalism is there, and a key component of that rehabilitation is saying that it's not hierarchy, it's meritocracy. It's, 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 these are the natural outcomes of daily life and economic exchange. And it's all welded together with this notion of civic duty and uplift. The first paper I ever wrote about Rotary was during, it was at the University of Michigan as a grad student, um, and it was an African-American history seminar paper. And um, all I wanted to do at the time was think, all I was thinking was how, how did these Rotary Clubs, which at the time I was thinking still was in the world of thinking like they were primarily small town America, you know, I hadn't really got done the research. How did they manage to define and defend their whiteness as a business community through these clubs? How did they do that? Because they, they were very clear, especially after 1922, they were very clear about men only. Um, so they were very clear about the, the fraternalism of it all and the, the gender identities of these businessmen, and, et cetera. But they were strategically very silent, especially again after 1922, because they stripped away any and all overt language, racialized language in the membership or cred credentials of clubs by night after 1922. So before 1922, you have a lot of clubs like in, no surprise, like in Birmingham, Alabama, where they say, you know, uh, white members of the business community, or I forget the exact language, you know, of upstanding character, you know, but they strip away any overt references to, to racial identity and whiteness after 1922, even as they're constructing and defending this racial boundary. And so how, how did these clubs and this organization in general purport to represent the entire community, even as they, you know, you know, clubs would have fundraisers and all kinds of club activities centered around occasionally minstrel shows, for example, well into the 1960s in some cases. But these were ways in which, again, um, you know, whiteness would be defined and, and, and asserted, very effective but ways, but unofficial ways. It's, it's really a question about, it's not just about the, how, how op, Rotary Clubs operated in this, in this way, but how did civic whiteness, the phrase used by you know, other scholars, how did civic whiteness get crystallized and rebranded and reconfigured over the course of the 20th century as race, forms of race and racism change? You know, you, you'd see these articles every so often in the Rotarian, the national magazine, a monthly magazine in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, where you know the, the headquarters is trying to talk down to these local clubs and say, look, don't, don't sh let your racism show uh, by the 1940s. Hey, uh, be careful of that racial prejudice, right? You can't have that, right? And they would be very happy to uh, um, kind of spotlight their, 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 the, the, the uh, tolerance and presence of Jewish members going back to the, the original Chicago club, for example, their tolerance and acceptance of Catholic members during the 1920s and 30s, which was no small thing. So they weren't entirely intolerant, built on a, an overt form of gender hierarchy and a, and a kind of covert form of racial hierarchy.
fits with what a, a lot of uh, the recent scholarship around creating whiteness. Um, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about Wichita as well with a really targeted question here. So how did the Rotary Club use progressive era democratic reforms to its advantage? And I'm thinking here about Harry Stanley and the Wichita branch, which you write extensively about. That's the tricky thing is that, you know, we all use the phrase among historians of uh, business progressivisms uh, or business progressives, business progressivism, you know, et cetera. And, and I think it is a useful term because it, it, but the thing is it would blur with their sense of boosterism. Sometimes they would see, they would see the need for reforms out of, out of the lens of, you know, we need to grow the local economy. We need better infrastructure. We need more bridges, things like that. And if we're not going to let, that's not going to happen if we don't clean up city hall. So there will be the, the kind of anti-corruption discourses that McGurr brings out in fierce discontent, for example. Um, and, 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 and that's a fairly common denominator across small town to big city rotary clubs, right? During the, the 1910s, 1920s, et cetera. Um, but it, there's also, there are the religious and quasi-spiritual dimensions to it. And, and I, this is something that I, uh, that thinking about the gender shift and Flanagan's work, for example, seeing with their hearts was really helpful for me and, and other similar types of scholarship where um, how, how were these clubs and these kinds of businessmen and this kind of business organization seeking to talk about and act with the community in ways that maintained their kind of manly stature, but at the same time allowed a space for sentimentality and, and caring for the community, but without it being stealing from almost the, the maternalist reform agendas and uh, reformism of that period and that energy and vibrancy and, and saying, hey, men can do this too. Businessmen can do this too. And so it would be a way for the mid mid-level and upper middle class uh, uh, salaried professionals to say, look, we're, we're not this terrible Cornelius Vanderbilt, the public be damned kind of capitalist, nor are we this kind of, to use a later phrase from the 20th century, bleeding heart kind of wishy-washy maternalist kind of where, you know, men who understand, you know, what the hard decisions, all that, you know, I don't know, masculinist kind of discourses, right, from the period, and um, how does that, how does the manliness of it all kind of get maintained and even reinforced, even as they're talking about caring for and uplifting the community, do you see? And so a key, that's why the, the emphasizing the fraternal nature of the organization, this is an organization of men, was so important to that agenda, because that, that gender shift, it's a kind of theft almost isn't really possible if it's men and women joining rotary clubs. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You could tell that you went to an interdisciplinary grad school because all of that's yeah. there. Yeah, um, right. Yep. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is about some of the international stories. Um, Japan is central to the story of RI. You, got, you have to tell us why Japan is central. So the question really is, how why did Japan become so central while Haiti and similar nations did not? And the way I the I sat on this for years thinking, why what do I do with this? Tokyo and, and Port-au-Prince are pretty much uh, uh, being presented to the Foreign Service, a Foreign Extension Committee, renamed the International Service Committee a little bit later, in Rotary in 1920, 21, 22. Uh, and, and so it, the story of Tokyo turns out to be the flip side of the story of Port-au-Prince and Haiti. Why? Because with Japan, with Tokyo in particular, the first Rotary Club, and then with Japan in general as a, as a growth center for Rotary, um, you have up um, Rotarians from the upper echelons, you know, uh, the board of directors kind of level, uh, um, chiming in and saying, we can't go into Japan, that's not a Christian nation, you know, and because their understanding of business civilization is that it's basically a, an extension of Christianity. Uh, whereas you have many of the uh, much more uh, um, experienced international businessmen and um, uh, those who are experienced with uh, diplomatic circles and so forth, stepping back and saying, that's not, 
Tokyo is ready for a Rotary Club. This is the right move. Uh, this is going to be a great opportunity for Rotary, uh, Rotary. And those are the arguments that won out. So that Tokyo, by extension, Jap Japan and the Japanese Empire got the green light early on. And that became a crucial way for Rotary to say, look, look at our inclusive nature. And I call them the exotic peers of, of Rotary. Look at these modern businessmen who are clearly not white, but are wearing the, the right, they wear the right attire. They speak the right, they speak modern business languages. They speak English. The Tokyo Rotary Club proudly had uh, held their, their meetings in, in English. On the flip side of that was the, the, um, the push for the uh, Rotary Club in Port-au-Prince in particular, and that got shot down. Uh, and ultimately why? Because, uh, it, because of race, but it's not that simple, right? It was also, a, and this kind of comes out in late snippets later on, you know, you have uh, members of the Rotary Club of say Atlanta, Houston, um, uh, and elsewhere in Jim Crow states and Jim Crow cities that were saying, look, if we allow Haitian members of the Port-au-Prince Rotary Club who are African in background or whatever phrase they use from the 1920s, some of them offensive, not, some not so offensive, but clearly uh, you know, racialized in, 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 in how they're thinking. If they become a, a member of, a full-on member of the Rotary Club of Port-au-Prince Haiti, guess what? They could go to next year's international convention in London or New York City or Tokyo, wherever the convention would be, or God forbid to our, our city in Houston or Atlanta, and have every right to mingle with us socially as peers. And they, that was just unimaginable to them. So what, what you're seeing is the, the clash between their Jim Crow worlds in the United States and in, their, in, 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 in these cities with this internationalist agenda. But it wasn't just the Jim Crow cities at the end of the day. It's not just the small town. I mean, New York City, Chicago, Seattle, you, you have most members that also can't really imagine, you know, um, uh, full full on Rotarian fellow Rotarians coming from hailing from the Caribbean, from South America, wherever, um, or Africa, who are coming in, who may be the true business elites where they come from, but their presence, their physical presence at these international gatherings is just simply unimaginable, especially because their wives are mixing with them. So, and, and they say this in these, in some of these debates, you know, they're fairly honest with each other. But if you think about it, you know, it, it drives home the, the racialized nature of the sociability of the movement in the organization, as much as the racialized nature of the capitalist relations and structures. Do you follow? And in one chapter you deal with Cuba. I mean, do you see Cuba as another case that's worth, you know, explaining in greater depth? Because I, I, you've got Tokyo and Port-au-Prince, but Cuba is slightly different than again, too. So how, how do you explain that? For several reasons. One is um, uh, because it's the first foray of, of, of Rotary Clubs into the non-Anglophone world during World War One, and they make a big to-do about that. They're well aware of, of that. And, and, and so, again, there, there's, there's the racialized language, you know, the, these Latin races, they're not ready for, you know, this level of citizenship and this kind of civic, they're not they don't get our civic discourses or our civic, you know, ways of, of understanding of um, the world and so forth. Um, and, they'll, and they'll invoke the language of, of the progressive era 
in a racialized way, which was typical of the progressive era, to say, like like Woodrow Wilson, and say they're not, they're simply not ready for for this. Um, but then you have others stepping back and saying, no, um, that's simply not the case. Uh, and it, as it turned out, it was the Tampa Rotarians, for example, that really uh, were successful uh, in uh, pushing for and getting the club started in Havana. And many of them were uh, 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 Cuban businessmen with a Spanish background, Spanish, I, you know, like originating or their families originating from Spain. Uh, and so what you're seeing there is a, a regional, regional business networks that were cross-border, international slash cross-border in nature, Tampa Bay and Havana, that were that ended up pushing the agenda and this is it turns out that turned out to be a really common pattern for the rest of the 20th century because it's one thing for uh our friend chesley perry in in, in chicago at the rotary headquarters to see it a certain way or rotarians in london or tokyo etc uh and and many of them are going to be thinking first and foremost as the the you know, I'm a British citizen or the British Empire or something like that. But then you get on the ground uh, business connections across, say, the border between Mexico and the United States, where you have business communities that are used to um, crossing that border all the time, every day. And so for them, it's, it's a, a no-brainer how to make this happen. The, the networks are already there. The social and business connections are already there. So the Cuba chapter allowed me to to detail that and then it's also they're they're not just crossing the u.s cuban national or international borders they're also crossing the anglophone uh hispanophone worlds and then as it turned out um moving into cuba and havana and then cuba it was similar to moving into mexico city in mexico because now it's let's really move south because it's the the western hemisphere becomes a field of opportunity from uh, once the war breaks out in Europe and it just never stops through the 1920s and 30s. So, I mean, there, this seems like a, a question that doesn't need answering, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. A lot of the story that you tell is about how the Rotary Club is also the story of globalization. And, you know, we're still living with globalization today, but how is it that Rotary International is still relevant in the US, but also in the world more broadly speaking? In many ways, it's even someone like Chesley Perry um, doesn't really understand uh, early on the, the relevance and importance of, of establishing this kind of non-state space in the international world, in the international arena, um, and how useful, strategically useful that can be they don't really quite understand in a specific example that is the foundation rotary foundation is kind of announced in 1917 by arch clump uh they don't really start funding it in any meaningful way until like i think 1928 um but it's not really doing a lot through the 1930s clubs all, local clubs are doing all kinds of fundraising for scholarships and all, all kinds of things but rotary international the foundation doesn't really it's not really operating. And then after 1947, with Paul Harris's death, they start coming up with these kind of very tax-friendly ways of bequeathing money to Rotary's foundation that they could then operationalize in this 
early Cold War setting. So now the Rotary Foundation really takes off after 1947, 1948, but it's understood within the context of these post-war international institutions. Rotary is very proud to be a, you know, one of the uh, original uh, sign, sign signatories of, of the United Nations, for example. They're pushing, and I go into this in, in the conclusion, they're pushing the United Nations and UNESCO well into the 1950s. And so they see the, the development of their own Rotary Foundation as part and parcel to that whole rapid expansion of the non-state non NGO world working hand in glove whenever possible with the US State Department, US foreign policy or whatever. The, 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 the evolution of the Rotary Foundation is, is a kind of a, a microcosm of the evolution of, of notions of humanitarianism over the course of the 20th century. I think the the one of the official phrases for Rotary Foundation today is humanity in motion or something like that, right? Uh, and it becomes over the course by the end of the 20th century, especially after the Cold War, as a as a significant selling point for joining a local Rotary club. By joining Rotary, you get involved with this all these activities for the Rotary Foundation. One of the things that the foundation was pushing from the late 1940s on was the ambassadorial scholarships. That was how I came across Rotary back in the 90s is I got an ambassadorial scholarship for a year in Scotland at the University of Glasgow, right? Uh, I wouldn't have known anything about Rotary without that. Um, so, you know, they, they think of it in terms of education, but it's really in the 1980s when they, when they sign on to the eradication of polio that they really uh, uh, get pulled into the world of global public health. So it's not just humanitarianism in this kind of broad amorphous sense of international cooperation or something. They want to, you know, operationalize these, these in international aspirations. Yeah. And that means, you know, opening the doors to uh, women as members. And so over the course of the 1980s, 1990s on, you have more and more women as a percentage of membership, women uh, in, in, in the in, uh, leadership ranks. And then I think it's this coming year that uh, Jennifer E. Jones is gonna be the first woman as an international president for Rotary in its 115 year existence. It's, a, it's an amazing story. And what about today, 2021, 22? Where, where is, what are their ambitions and plans? Is it, is it mainly with the foundation? Or is the RI still a driving force for? It's still there. Yeah, it still has a, a significant presence. You know, it the monthly magazines and the publication, all these other kinds of publications. It's just that I'd say now, a hundred years later, RI and the foundation are kind of almost co-equal in some ways. Whereas a hundred years ago, you know, the foundation was, um, you know, on paper only in 1921. You know. Uh, and I think that reflects broad trends of the 20th century anyway. You know, it's it's not like I want to say, oh, you know, if you look at Rotary, you can, you're going to see everything that's going on in the world, you know. But there's a reason why a lot of these broader trends um, often find uh, are are reflected in, in, in the growth and development and evolution of an organization like this, simply because it, it is almost everywhere. It, the only places where you cannot find a Rotary Club generally is is either uh, a communist nation, or um, well, or before World War II, a fascist nation. Like the the Third Reich was uh, uh, kicking out uh, all Rotor, Rotary Clubs because it was seen as a a foreign presence, which was kind of true, but not really. But but for the Third Reich, it was defined as 
foreign and therefore they were purged, I want to say by 1937. And then it, the, it finally happens with the Japanese clubs by 1940, same thing. I really want to give you an opportunity to say something about the sources because thumbing through the book again, I see that you've got extensive notes, but the bibliography isn't there. And I wonder, is that because your publisher was going to, was, they were going to say to you, you, you can't have 50 pages of bibliography. It just seems like you, you've done a ton of research here. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the source base. I got lucky in that I was able to get access to the archives for Rotary International while the archives were being formed uh, between 2000 and 2010, 2012 or somewhere in there. So I did the lion's share of my research for this for the dissertation and by extension, I guess, for the book um, in 2003, 2004 at the Rotary's uh, headquarters in, in Evanston. And I'll give you a quick example of this. I remember talking with the archivist at the time. Um, uh, I wanted to look at files on, on Rotary in the United Nations. And, uh, and she said, well, can you give me about six months? And, I, and I'm like, what do you mean six months? And she said, well, because we're only up to P in the archives. So if you want to look at pamphlets, we just finished working on pamphlets. If you want to look at, you know, uh, something that begins with L, you know, Lithuania or something like that. We can handle that. We can't handle you because we're not there yet. So give us another six months. I'm like, okay. So and about six months later, they started getting into the, anything that started with you, Uruguay or whatever, right? That allowed me to kind of see uh, up close the, the archival materials for a private organization, which normally doesn't happen, right? Uh, and um for understandable reasons, they, they want to treat it in a kind of proprietary way and so forth. But um, of all the business organizations that are out there, Rotary, I think, at least when I was there doing my research, Rotary was a, a lot more open about it. It's because you need two things to happen. One, for an organization like this to have an archive, a series archive, which they were in the process of doing in the early 2000s in anticipation of 2005, the 100th year, 100 year anniversary of Rotary. That's why they were building the, the archives. Um, so number one, you need an organization to have a you know, professional archivist or two or three or whatever to come in and clean up and get these boxes out of warehouses and so forth and actually build an archive. And then number two, allow some kind of meaningful access to those archives. So a lot of organizations like this, uh, I remember my one advisor at Michigan, Matt Lasseter was, he, he used to say, you know, businessmen are, are notorious for, for not, you know, recording anything, not, certainly not archiving anything, you know, like, so it's really hard to tell the history of capitalism, if you think about it, because there's so much internal to capitalism geared, that's geared towards forgetting. I wanted my dissertation and I wanted my book to start and end with a private organization and, and, and begin and end from a non-state point of view and non-state ways of being in the world and then and see what happens and what how we see the world. And then DC and foreign policy and diplomats and diplomacy, all that comes in, obviously. But um, and I went to the National Archives lots of times, but it was kind of random snippets of, of little, you know, 
uh, something connected to Rotary Clubs in you know Mont um, Montevideo or, or Buenos Aires or, or Caracas or something like that. Um, but the but the real when you looked at the actual archives, especially the ar archival holdings in say the European Secretariat in Zurich for Switzerland, amazing materials that diplomatic historians should be looking at. Again, like I spent three days. In, in the in in the Wichita State Archives, looking at the ch the records for the Chamber of Commerce for Wichita, to get a fuller understanding of the evolution of the business community in tandem alongside the Rotary Club itself, because they they overlap greatly, obviously, but they're not identical. But I I didn't really get to use any of that in the Wichita chapter, except in my understanding of Wichita as a business community evolving over, and it informed my interpretive structure and reinterpretation, et cetera. I love it. And we owe you a major debt of gratitude for spending time in, in places like Wichita, digging through club histories. It is a fantastic- You learn a lot. <laughs> you learn a lot. Unda I undoubtedly, it's, it's a big ask though, Brendan. It's a laugh big ask. Laugh and cry. To, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I hope to hear more of them in future. The, the book is, it's really fantastic. It really does a great service for diplomatic historians, for historians of international relations, or historians that are interested in internationalism. But it's also really interesting for those people who just drive by a rotary sign when they're passing from town to town. This is an opportunity for you to figure out an awful lot more about an organization that has imbued American culture from the progressive era onward. So thank you so much, Brendan, for writing this. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.